Hello, friends of Herbie. I am Steve Fenton, the Managing Director of Tainflow Consulting Limited. And welcome to this episode of the Agile Uprising Podcast. Greetings and welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising podcast. I'm your host again, Jay Hersko. Joining me, I have my uh, constant collaborator, Mr. Ben Al Young. Ben, good morning. Good to be here. Thanks, Jay. We are glad to have you. And joining us once again uh, is the the man, the myth, the legend behind Tameflow. We're here to talk about Steve's newest book, Standing on Bits, Mr. Steve Tenman. Steve, thanks for taking the time. It's my pleasure to be here. And well, thank you for that myth and legend. I hope I can live up to, to that. <laughs> So I guess, Steve, I'll start with this simple question, right? So we had you on once before to talk about the book of Tameflow, and you just put out Standing on Bits, which is a much more compact um, version of Tameflow. So what led to what led to this book? And, and for those that are curious, how does this differentiate between uh, the book of Tameflow? The uh, backdrop of the two books is different, though the content is in many ways uh, overlapping, but it's presented in different ways. The first one uh, we could say is uh, for a general audience um, and in particular, given the industry in uh, which uh, we operate, all those that maybe are familiar with, uh, with Agile and all the variations thereof, Kanban, uh, uh, Scrum, Safe, uh, you name it. The, uh, the standing on bits um, is more uh, deliberately aimed at people who know about the theory of constraints. In fact, no, the title standing on bits uh, is uh, trying to recall um, the title of a paper written by Goldrick, which was standing on the shoulders of giants, which in turn recalled uh, the famous saying of uh, Isaac Newton. So it's like a long string from Isaac Newton until this, <laughs> until this <laughs> little, uh, little booklet. Um, the reason for writing this standing on bits is uh, that the people uh, who are in TOC, they might be uh, experts in handling traditional projects with their very uh, well thought of crit critical chain project management approach. It works great for traditional projects, but uh, TOC has not really cracked the nut of how to make their brilliant ideas coexist with, uh, with Agile. And that's what I have done. So the idea, is to, the idea was to give the TOC audience um, a way to bridge their concepts to what matters from an Agile perspective. Um, and uh, I think that also defines uh, what you should know before you read the book. The, the precondition, the prerequisite for reading Standing on Bits is that you know TOC inside out. Otherwise, it might be a bit hard, and then you're advised to read the first book first. And Ben and I, we were sharing our notes and talking back and forth. We, we and I'm sure Ben, uh, you would agree, whenever we start talking about theory of constraints around Agile practitioners, and I'm sure you see this too, Steve, you get, oh yeah, I read the goal, pregnant pause, Herbie, 
pregnant pause and then they'll say something like either flow or drum buffer rope and then the conversation turns because i i don't think there is the emphasis on the level of education around the theories the 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 information behind toc that we see in some of the other methodologies i mean you'd agree right ben we've been in some of those uncomfortable conversations where people's eyes just glass over yeah, you, you tend to get the the summary and the you know a few highlights, but that's that's kind of it. I think it would do us all better to to understand this stuff more. Right. I, I think that's a very common uh, situation that uh, uh, people have been exposed to the theory of constraints, and typically it is through reading the goal and maybe various blog posts here and there, uh, where maybe they know about the five focusing steps and the. The general impression is, oh, it's all about chasing the bottleneck. In reality, well, we spoke about this last time. It's not the bottleneck, but the constraint, which is a more general concept. Uh, but what is really important to understand is also that TOC is really two huge bodies of knowledge. One is the constraints management proper, or the bottleneck thing, if you wish. But the other one uh, goes under the name of the thinking processes. And that covers a lot of ground because it gives you a way to, to analyze, to understand reality and to draw conclusions and thus make decisions which then turn into actions and, uh, and, uh, and things that you deliver. So it's, it's really uh, a way to um, gain, uh, uh, let's say, the scientific approach, but applied to, to the realm of management. Perfect. Perfect. So last episode, Steve, we talked a lot about the concept of bottlenecks. We talked about flow. We talked about theory of constraints and all that sort of stuff. Ben and I wanted to do something a little bit different this episode to go into some of the other concepts that you've introduced that really, I think, have a, have a lot of legs. The first one I think I'd like to tip off, tick yeah. off is the, the idea of performance flows in an organization. So you came up with the idea of there's four performance flows in an organization. There's psychological, informational, operational, financial. And then you had this great graphic on page 11 where how they're all inextricably linked to both financial and human performance and how one feeds the other. Um, could, you, could you expound on a little bit, a little bit more of that, Steve, for those, those listeners that may not have the book in front of them? I have to get to page 11. I don't remember <laughs> all the graphics by heart. So. <laughs> um, well, uh, well, this, this like also uh, illustrates, if we want to take it like from a... Um, uh, a, a, a longer perspective, you know, it illustrates that TAMEflow has multiple dimensions. And uh, uh, it might have become known as the application of TOC to knowledge work and agile. Um, but TAMEflow, as I think we said la last time, you know, the origins are really in, uh, in patterns, pattern languages, and pattern, pattern theory. And when I talk about these four flows, financial, operational, information, psychological, the financial and operational are more aptly the domain where I apply the theory of constraints. But then I have the informational flow, and that is where I do a lot of thinking and work with patterns and pattern languages, pattern theory. And then psychological flow is entirely inspired by the works of the uh, uh, late American-Hungarian psychologist Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, 
I hope I pronounced oh, that's that how you, Is that how you pronounce that? Because I was going to ask you. I, actually just, <laughs> I just picked yeah, that I, up I, and I was trying to Google it. And I'm like, I'm talking to my phone and I know I'm butchering the pronunciation. My <laughs> Google is never going to find this book. <laughs> the trick is to think of chicks sent me high, Lee. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that works. So, so those are like the, the, um, the theoretical backgrounds of the four flows. But what I try to do uh, is to, so, okay, first of all, if you, if you improve on any one of those four flows uh, alone, you will experience great, uh, great improvements. So focusing on any one alone is, uh, is worthwhile. Uh, Agile, Scrum in particular, focuses almost only on operational flow. The majority of Scrum is there. Um, but what I try to do is to create action on all four flows and not only improving them, but, and this is the secret sauce, making them all aligned so they go in the same direction. And thus we aim at uh, one of my uh, battle cries, creating the unity of purpose uh, between all the actors in the in the organization. I, I love how um, when you get into this concept of flows and you have them all dashed, uh, aligned on top of one another, you, there's a quote you had, which I actually printed out on a post-it it's sitting here next to my desk, where Agile fails to connect the changes it produces in operational flow with the financial results expected in financial flow. And when you read that, I kind of stepped back and I, and I did one of those I stared off into the sky and I went, ah, shit, he's right. Because that's, Ben, right? That's one of the things we really struggle with is, you know, you have people running around yelling, agile, 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 to quote, to quote Mike Cannell, agile, 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 agile. But yet there's somebody on the other side with a bean, the bean counter, right? Who's looking at the, the checkbook going, how does that tie to this? And it's almost like, um, like a disconnect. Uh, yes, I think that is very common, and uh, not only for Agile, but for most uh, improvement uh, approaches. And uh, the insight really comes from uh, the part of theory constraints, which goes under the name of throughput accounting, or more generally, throughput economics. Uh, because just as we learned from the story of Herbie, um, any kid uh, that could walk faster than Herbie, even if he started running double or three times the speed, uh, would not uh, influence uh, uh, an ounce the, the time it would take for Herbie to arrive at base camp. Mm -hmm. In other words, the performance of the system is limited to the performance of the constraint. So what has this to do with the financial aspect? Well, when you run agile transformations, you know, those wonderful events that last <laughs> two or three years and where everyone is called to uh, participate and elevate their own, uh, well, performance or uh, engagement, you name it, whatever they want to improve. Well, the more people that are engaged, so the larger the company, the more likely any one of those activity will give zero results. Why? Because they are not the constraint. So most of those efforts, uh, I would say 99.999 period, uh, are wasted. And uh, then the bead counter say, hey, we, we spent like 800,000 on training and coaching or even millions uh, on training and coaching all these people. And then we look at the bottom line. Uh, did it move an inch? No, we got mm -hmm. a lot of costs. 
And most likely, we also distressed all these folks because we sent them to, to force training. And uh, then you get uh, you know, the next wave. Oh, Scrum didn't work. Let's try with Kanban. And oh, Kanban didn't work. Let's try with SAFE. And so you get this, uh, this fatigue of keeping on changing and changing, but you never see the results. And of course, this also creates some sort of resentment and the, like the stereotypical resistance that many in the agile space have uh, towards, I would say, against management, just gets reinforced. Because managers, they ask for the results, they don't see them. And uh, maybe the people who've been doing Scrum and what else, they are celebrating because the, the throughput, uh, if you're doing Kanban, the, the operational throughput increased by 2% or 200%, it doesn't matter. The bottom line didn't move an inch. So mm -hmm. it's that connection that is missing. And that's what I provide with Tameflow. The, 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 the uh, what is it? The local optimization. Everybody's optimizing locally, but there is no consistent tie-in. So like you said, the, my team is great. We're up 2% in our performance. That's great. And then you look, it's, it's the equivalent of the, the, the old comic of the boat, the boat is sinking and the two guys up front are, look at how fast we're rowing. And the two guys in the back are going, look at how fast we're bailing water. And it's completely incongruent to where you're actually trying to do. Yeah, correct. You have a, another quote here, Steve, which I think is is kind of kind of a bit of opening the the kimono and having us look at ourselves, where we talk about engineering is responsible for the costs, yet no one is responsible for the benefit realization, and that ties to the whole. You know, you made a remark about uh, our agile transformations, which we sadly typically run as projects, and there's a lot of emphasis on getting um, the estimate right and the estimate, and when are you going to deliver, and how long is this going to take. But it goes into production. We do a quasi postmortem and move, life moves on. And who is the one actually holding Ben's feet to the fire? Because Ben requested this multi million dollar initiative. Who's the one holding his feet to the fire to say, are we getting the money out of it that we put into it, that we expected? No one. Because what typically happens is if the, the, like the business results uh, do not uh, uh, match the expectation, uh, then there are many excuses which are much more credible than the excuses that the engineers come up with <laughs> when they miss the, uh, the estimates. Uh, we all know that the estimates don't work, uh, but the, the excuses you have from, a, from a, like the market perspective, it's always the market that moved on and another competitor came up with something else. Uh, uh, there was a new regulation. Uh, there is always an excuse, so uh, so no one is really held accountable because they can always find an uh, an excuse. But that's what I uh, what I say. You know, if you want to create a high performing organization, just as uh, in uh, in principle, you uh, uh, the business expects uh, uh, estimates from uh, from the technical side, and I repeat, estimates don't work. We don't use them in Tameflow. Well, this is another point I want to highlight, but that's the general expectations. Well, likewise, uh, we should expect that the business side uh, properly estimates what, uh, what this thing is worth. Now, you want us to do this. Uh, why? What are you planning to bring home? And this is so essential that it is central to the way I do the the, let's say the intake process of what we should do next and uh, select what we should do and prioritize what we should do. So it's not just uh, a sort of uh, revenge of the nerd that wants the, the business to, uh, to estimate value. It is really fundamental because in those two uh, 
estimates or forecasts, one on the technical side, which is about time, and the other one on the business side, which is about the dollar sign, so money over time, we have uh, a situation where we can bring about collaboration between these two camps. And this is unheard of, I think, because uh, the agile uh, space, as I mentioned before, is uh, so loaded with anti-management sentiment that, uh, that there is some uh, well, resistance to that. And likewise, managers are not used to collaborate with the techie side. So uh, this is, uh, has far-reaching um, consequences because when we talk about collaborative knowledge work, it's not only the collaboration between the tester and the coder, it's also the collaboration between the technical engineering side and all those that are on the business side, sales, marketing, strategy, you name it. So it has this very important aspect of creating collaboration. And then it is the basis for the fundamental, uh, let's say, value diagram. Uh, the financial throughput rate, which is the metrics that I use to uh, assess the uh, the worthwhileness of any initiative is basically, <clears throat> excuse me, is basically money over time. So we need both variables. Awesome. Ben? Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about, or hoping you can share with everyone, uh, you mentioned management by exception using aging, kind of eating into items buffers. And I thought it was really cool how you laid it out. The, the way I kind of interpreted it was that um, you know, speaking of how this meshes with the agile world, I feel like a lot of us have dealt with sort of the originally just prescribed scrum, daily scrum, where people kind of go one by one and anybody whose turn it isn't, they just kind of, you know, stop paying attention or start playing network wars on their phone <laughs> or whatever it is that they might do. Uh, and then I consider something that's, you know, a little bit better than that is something that's a bit more like a um, in the Kanban format of, of uh, walking the board from right to left and you focus on getting things to done and you go by work item as opposed to by individual. Um, but you sort of propose sort of what I consider to be sort of uh, an even more evolved form of that, which is using management by exception because of aging of items. Could you speak a little bit as to how that works? So the, uh, the aging of items on, uh, on the work board, on the Kanban board, uh, is actually a concept that uh, that developed in uh, many conversations with Dan Vacanti and his pro Kanban. Uh, Dan probably started doing this before me, uh, but uh, when I saw it, I said, I thought, well, this is exactly what I do in the aggregate. So to be clear, the aging signal is on a single work item. In the aggregate, I mean the, uh, let's say the work package, the units of, uh, of delivery, which you know I call the move, but it could be like the the uh, the sprint backlog that, uh, that that you commit to deliver at the end of the sprint. So it's a number of work items, a number of user stories. When I deal with uh, a number of user stories, I have a way to use uh, the uh, let's say the buffer management technique of critical chain project management which is the source of the idea of, uh, of uh, uh, work execution uh, signals. So when I spoke with Dan, I, I, I saw the immediate connection and thought, okay, we need to, to have the same kind of, uh, of uh, um, let's say, uh, 
three colored signal uh, signals Dan just works on percentiles and when when the agent goes beyond a certain percentile that is what draws attention uh, I introduced the distinction that comes from critical chain project management to have like the three zones green everything is fine yellow oh be careful start looking at the situation be prepared and red act because you are not late yet but you will be if you do not act so how does it work on on the Kanban board. Well, um, the basic thing is that we keep track of flow time. Uh, the more conventional term is cycle time, but there is there is a subtle distinction to be made. We won't do it now. You know, just think of the time from start to finish. And we can measure that time, not only from start to finish throughout the board, but also throughout every single column or work state. And uh, therefore, we can start to have um, uh, like a flow time distribution, the statistics of how that um, timeline looks like. And uh, basically, if a work item uh, stays still for too long in one column, so it is aging, after a certain threshold, we have a signal. The first threshold is when it goes from, from green to yellow. That means pay attention. This is uh, probably uh, a challenged item, and the second signal is when it goes from from uh, yellow to uh, to red. Now, uh, what I teach, and I start from the Kanban board, but then this this behavior uh, uh, goes over also to the to the um, to the buffer signals. Well, what I teach is is this behavioral response that when you go like in uh, uh, you have a signal. You have a few things that you need to do. One is to keep track, so you record in a log, what you think are the reasons for, uh, for that thing aging. So the signal, why did it come about? And the second behavior is that um, when something goes in the red and you have to resolve it, we want the team, the entire team to swarm. They go to the, to the item that is aging. We don't do, as often is the case, that we have flowbacks, that the car that maybe is stuck there is sent back to some previous stage because something was missing. No, we keep it in place and we make the people, so to say, come down to the point where it's stuck. And if the team is, uh, well, the assumption is that the team by swarming will resolve the problem and the thing gets unstuck. But if the team is not able to resolve the problem, uh, the third element is that we want to uh, escalate this as uh, quickly as possible. As soon as you realize that it is beyond your capability of resolution, uh, that's where you get the escalation signal. So this is the sense of an, uh, a management by exception, because you call management action on the exception. Uh, it might be hard to learn, especially for management, because it requires that we, like, uh, reformulate the social contract, if you wish, the working agreement that uh, there sh should be in place between the engineers and, and the managers. Um, managers have to understand that when that signals happen, it's serious stuff. So they need to act as quickly as, uh, uh, as possible and either resolve the situation maybe even with, uh, let's say, a service level agreement, so we keep them accountable, again, to respond within 48 hours or whatever. Uh, or if it cannot be resolved, then the, uh, the issue, uh, the work has to be 
uh, cancelled and, uh, and backtracked. What this creates is, is um, like um, a maniacal uh, attention to getting things moving. As soon as they start to slow down beyond what is the norm from the, from the statistical flow distribution, we, we act immediately. We don't leave anything to age on the board. And then, you know, you have those cases where you had that, that story card parked there in the corner of the board. And it was there maybe for 200 days and everyone has forgotten <laughs> about it. So we avoid that. <laughs> my, uh, my good, our, our <clears throat> podcast host, Troy, he uses the term turkeys. To, that's his label for things that have been on the board for past a certain amount of time. And he was consulting somewhere where they had an actual portfolio Kanban board. And he said, how do you, you know, how do you all think things are moving through the system? Oh, it's moving great. It's moving great. And he bought turkey stickers and he would go up to the card on the board and put a turkey sticker on the stuff that's been there too long. <laughs> and to your point about, you know, the maniacal focus on getting things moving through the system. Um, it sounds kind of childish, Steve, but he said once he started putting turkey stickers on those cards, people were, to use your word, maniacally focused on getting the turkeys off the board because it didn't look good if our board had four turkeys and the other board had none. So, yeah, it's con <laughs> concentrate your statement of getting the stuff moving, get the work moving through the system is, is, is amazingly insightful. Don't worry about. You know, don't worry about are we being resource efficiency? It's is the work getting through the system? I'm sorry, Ben, I cut yeah. you off. Oh no, I, I was just saying that th I think these signals sound incredible, and, and using them to be well informed by sort of historically how fast things are moving, and and having those different thresholds of the green, yellow, red, um, it really kind of focuses you to to focus on what matters and kind of just let the rest go, let it flow, really. Um, and so it's it's a it seems like a much more uh, intentional way of using calories, whether it's swarming or whether it's management uh, intervention somehow or support, uh, just seems way, way more effective. Um, it, that I think fits in kind of well with another question about averages. Um, I'm sure you've come, you seem to be a close collaborator with Picanti and um, he, he talks in his books quite a bit about the flaw of averages. And I was, it, when I was reading that stuff, I was thinking quite along the lines of, oh, I, I almost never want to use an average again. I, I, it just it just seems like this thing that's quite um, overused or overapplied in ways that don't work out well. But you actually changed my mind a little bit to have a bit more of a nuanced view of it in terms of when you're making these buffers, um, an average can be a fine enough starting point. And then from there, you can kind of, I think you use the phrase, you can either tighten the bolts or loosen the bolts, depending on how things go from that point forward. Um, so could you speak a bit about how averages work in terms of informing these buffers? Well, uh, averages alone do not work. So on that point, I, I completely agree with, with Dan. You should not think in terms of averages. But the average that I use uh, is an anchoring point. And we do use it as a heuristic to very quickly uh, get the ranges that we want to use as uh, as buffers. Now you could do this uh, in uh, in a very uh, scientific way, and Nordan uh, does a lot of uh, Monte Carlo simulations, and you could use a, a, a Monte Carlo simulation to establish what are the the uh, the the more um, uh, uh, the more reliable uh, thresholds with respect to, to where you want to place the buffer. Uh, you could do that, but then you would, uh, you would need to, um, 
to have the tooling for doing that. Um, and most people don't. So what is the trick? It's a heuristic. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not precise, but the purpose is to get going as fast as possible and be pragmatic, to have something that works. Uh, if you have the average, you could say, okay, more or less it's 50%. So just by proportion, we can establish, for instance, the 60, 70, and 80%. It will be wrong because they don't have the actual uh, distribution curve, but it's good enough to give you the signals. We don't care about doing an exact statistical modeling. Uh, we care about the signals because the focus of Taintflow is, if I want to make a distinction uh, with other methods, is squarely on execution. And the signals are the most important things to get st stuff like unstuck, as we said before. So a quick way to establish where you, where you can uh, like place the buffer or the anchor point and uh, how you can size it uh, is good enough. Now, in a different part of the book, I also connect this to like the psychological flow um, because the, those buffer signals will also reflect uh, the, um, the stress uh, that, um, that hits the team. So the point is, uh, statistics notwithstanding, uh, you want to be able to uh, load or unload the team in such way that they are just a bit challenged, but they can do it. Uh, but you don't want to overload them because then they are stressed and then nothing moves. And likewise, you don't want them to get bored because then uh, attention fades and you will start to have like quality problems they get sloppy and so on and so forth. So by looking at the signals you get from any buffer you have placed there, even with a, an approximate heuristic, then as time goes by, as you mentioned, quoting me there, you can like tighten the bolts or let them loose. So that means you make the buffer smaller and you shift it to the left, or you make it wider and you shift it to the right. And you see this immediately in, uh, in uh, where the, the work items uh, or, or the moves are, the, the, uh, the buffer burn rate of any team. So um, I tend to say that you should strive to keep the teams in the yellow signal zone, because then you, you, are, you are in the, in the flow channel as, uh, as we uh, refer to it in, in the psychological flow. So there are many interconnected parts here, uh, which uh, start off from the average, but that is just the anchoring point. That's where we start to, to have something to, to put in place. And then we tweak and tune it as we go along. I like that. <clears throat> I like that uh, using the average as the jumping off point, right? It's the signal. And then you can, uh, you use the term earlier in the book, um, shape and form. That's what you want to get to, but you can use the average to start as as a jumping off point yeah i call it an anchor because that's you know, we, we that's the the point where we fix the beginning of the buffer to start with mm -hmm. and also these 60 70 80 uh, percent points uh, obtained through pro proportion are absolutely wrong but they work so <laughs> better something wrong that works than something right that doesn't work <laughs> <laughs> very, very well said very well said you got another question ben um, yeah, I was wondering about um, 
tooling in particular? Because um, I think all this, like the signaling, the visualization, and I think, I mean, Jay mentioned earlier about the four different flows and how, I don't know if all four of them necessarily, but it seems like a lot of them are covered on something like the bubble fever chart. Um, and I mean, that's not the only visualization uh, that you talk about. I, I was just wondering, um, when it comes to bringing this stuff to life, do you have any recommended uh, tools or a collection of tools to kind of um, help people get started using some of this stuff? Well, uh, there is one tool that tries to implement TameFlow as, uh, as it's described in the books, and that's, um, that's the, the Lynx products from Adato, which is a small software company uh, in the Netherlands. Um, However, their product is more geared to uh, theory of constraints practitioners. So mm. uh, it's not well known in the in the agile space, uh, but it has most of the things that uh, that you would need to get started. Then, of course, Dan uh, Vacantis or for his former, uh, no, he, he created Actionable Agile. I think he's out of the product now, but basically it's his it's his his baby. Uh, that's an excellent tool for the uh, for the aging signals on the on the work items. Uh, I would definitely start with uh, something like that, uh, and then for the buffer signals, you probably have to to export things and uh, and tweak things around in uh, in uh, in an Excel sheet or something like that. Uh, there is no tool that does the whole thing. So if anyone is listening and uh, and uh, has an itch to scratch, as we say, no, this is a great opportunity. <laughs> ben, we're going into software. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, speaking of an itch to scratch, Steve, um, I, I like to talk a little bit. It's not specifically about the book, but you just spun up a very vibrant community through Circle. So can we talk about that for people who want to connect to you? They want to learn more about TameFlow. They want to get in the room with other practitioners. Um, could you give our, our listeners a little bit of information about that? Yeah, no, thank you for the question, because this is my latest uh, initiative. Uh, it is like, uh, if you wish, a private Facebook or a private LinkedIn. And uh, it was all triggered by the fact that, uh, that uh, well, the, the well-known social networks, I think, just do not work to have, to have like, uh, deep professional conversations, respectful conversations mm. about, uh, about these <laughs> topics. Uh, and also things get lost, you know, try, try to find uh, the post you did like two weeks ago on LinkedIn. No, it's, it, it's, it's lost in a black hole. You can't find it. So, so it's very, very hard to, to, to have like cross references. So I created this circle you know, the, the website is circle.tameflow.com where uh, now anyone can, uh, can join. It's, it's like sponsored by me, by Tameflow. There is an open space where anyone can join and, uh, and we have conversations about all things in the industry from TOC to, to Lean to Agile, Kinefin, you name it. Um, and then of course there is an inner circle where I have my courses and, uh, and other goodies for, for, uh, for those that uh, want to, uh, to enjoy them. That's, that is a, behind a paywall. But the open space is uh, is open for anyone and for uh, for anything. Uh, of course, there is some degree of moderation because uh, I want to avoid the the mudslinging that happens in other places. And as long as people are respectful and want to have a conversation about these topics, uh, you are all more than welcome to join. 
<laughs> and we will we will provide a link in the show notes if anybody is uh, really interested. Uh, I'm I'm a member. I, I suggest everyone check it out. There are some really some really brilliant conversation going on, even in in the open space section. There's some really really good conversation. Um, it is kind of funny how most social media devolves into mudslinging and what I, what I term Steve is intellectual buffoonery. People making these <laughs> statements that they think come off as like grandiose and they're going to be like Gandhi. Or, 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 you know, Osho, and it comes out, and it's like, really? Like, you thought that was a good idea? Yeah, it wasn't a great idea. All right, so uh, let me ask you this, Steve. What's next for you? What's next for you? What's next for TameFlow? Uh, well, great, uh, great question. I still have my, uh, my aspirational book, you know, The TameFlow Patterns. I don't know if and when I will ever be able to, to finish that off. Now, it's the draft started in 2016. Uh, that's, that's one thing I want to do. I, I have uh, 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 an ongoing conversation with the legendary Tom Guild and his ideas of multi-stakeholder value uh, quantification and, and management competitive engineering. Uh, there are great synergies between his methods and, uh, and the things I do uh, know the face of, of the intake, um, uh, which we call the full kitting. So that's one uh, one area where where his techniques can can have great great value. So that that is like a research topic, a research area that I'm uh, that I'm developing. Uh, and uh, yes, of course, you know, the, the the engagement there with uh, with the circle. You that's I, I want the community to to grow and thrive. And uh, maybe as that goes forward, you know, one idea is also to to make it into an open marketplace for people who are offering services in this space. Uh, not only TameFlow, but any any kind of uh, of school of thought, uh, it's uh, it's really open. I'm not like the, the 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 safe or kanban guys that unless you do their thing, you're uh, you better shut up. No, I, that's not me. Anyone can come and speak. We were Ben and I were just having this conversation where you get more you get more value out of finding something that's off to the side and outside of your current specialization. If you just specialize in digging deeper into. You can only go. You can only go so far into theory before you wake up and you realize you have actually created cranial rectal inversion. Um, so, uh, Steve, we're we're quick, quickly hitting up on time. So, if people want to um, get in touch with you, they want to find more information. How do they reach out? Where do they go? Uh, probably the most direct channel is on Twitter. I am at Tendon, T-E-N-D-O-N. Uh, otherwise, uh, join the circle. There, we also have direct messaging. So circle.tainflow.com. On LinkedIn, you find me again as Tendon. So uh, it's always Tendon. It's uh, the broken Tendon. It's always Tendon. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. So on behalf of Ben and myself, Stephen, want to thank you for taking the time today to sit with us. This is, once again, it's an enjoyable conversation. We have a lot. I have half-page notes here. I have a lot to ruminate on. On behalf of Steve, Ben, and myself, I want to thank all of you listeners for listening once again. Uh, find us on Discord. Continue the conversation. We have, I think we just hit uh, registered user number 453 or something. So it's slowly but surely growing. Uh, get in on there. Uh, thank you to Machine Man Records and Krebs for our royalty-free outro music. We do have a Patreon. Um, we are committed to being free. However, if you like what you hear and you want to chip in, do so. We also have a Patreon rewards program now where once a quarter we're sending out gigaws. We just sent out a fancy pair of Agile Uprising socks. Who knows what you'll get next month? Maybe you'll get my safe training manual. Who knows? So once again, until next time, this is the Agile Uprising podcast signing out.